And I want to thank Todd for the years he's worked with our youth, teaching them on Sunday mornings. And, and it's, just, it's growing now into the evening, and Todd says, man, I can't do both things. So we have uh, not replaced him. You never replace a guy like this. But thank you, thank you, Todd. Well, I don't have a sermon this morning, uh, or a homily. I had a sermon when I went to sleep last night, and about, well, it was actually exactly 2.55. I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit, or if it was the pulled pork that Ryan and Jill sent home with me that I had for dinner. Sometimes you can't really tell the difference, <laughs> what's going on, I don't know. But I woke up and I thought, that's, that's, that just doesn't feel right. It was a good sermon. I might preach it someday. But uh, for some reason, my mind went to a different place. Same passage, same truth, but delivered a bit differently. Our passage is taken from Acts chapter 1. We've been uh, working in the book of Acts, these early chapters, and will be for uh, a five-week series just to get our foundation laid. What is this thing, church? How did it begin uh, where did it all go, and how did it grow, and how did it ever get from Jerusalem to Palm Desert, California? And, and so these early chapters of Acts, actually the whole book of Acts, tells about the spread of the church. And so uh, the, the, last week we, we uh, assured ourselves that Jesus, through inspiring Luke to write these early verses of, Luke, of Acts chapter 1, wanted to assure us that he's still alive. And we read about it in the Gospels, that Jesus was crucified. And then we read that after his crucifixion, he was back. People saw him again. Uh, St. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, elaborates in detail on the on the number of people who saw Jesus after he was crucified. And, and to say that there is no, no doubt, the evidence is overwhelming that this Jesus who was crucified is alive. And so Luke tells us that for 40 days, Jesus convinced his followers by many convincing proofs that he was alive. In those first five verses of chapter 1 in Luke, uh, focus on that fact that Jesus is alive. Then we move to the next phase uh, after Jesus said to his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem. This is uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Luke used a particular device, a grammatical device there. There's two little words that are inserted that aren't translated. And, and, the, and, and we would translate them, for John baptized on the one hand with water, but you, on the other hand, will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, in using that comparison, the on the one hand, men but you on the other. He's not diminishing John's baptism. He praised John, and he praised John's baptism. He said, that was wonderful. People coming in droves to be baptized for the repentance of their sins. So that was a wonderful thing. 
But as wonderful as that was, you, on the other hand, won't be baptized with water. You'll be baptized. You will be immersed in. You will be filled with. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So this thing that's going to happen to you is astounding. As great as John's baptism was, as much of a difference as it made in people's lives to, to come and repent of their sins and to have this washing experience, as marvelous as that was, you, on the other hand, will have an experience that's far greater. And we will look at that next week where this baptism of the Holy Spirit came. Verse 6, he moves then from that first movement where he's talking about, about the, 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 the early days of Jesus in general. He then f- focuses a bit in verse 6. Then, he says, they, the eleven, the apostles, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They really wanted that to happen. They were excited. They were anxious. Now, they thought before he was crucified. In fact, uh, Luke tells us that as they were on their way up to Jerusalem for what we know of called the triumphal entry, they fully believed that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to drive the Romans out and to establish the kingdom of God. But instead of Jesus conquering the Romans, it appeared that the Romans had conquered Jesus. And the reason these guys were so excited about that is in Matthew 20, we, uh, Matthew 19, excuse me, we read that Jesus said, when I sit on my throne in my kingdom, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine this guy going up and saying, hey, mom, you ain't going to believe this. You know what Jesus told me today? I'm going to have a throne. I'm going to be judging one of the tribes of Israel. Wow, is that going to be cool? And mom said, yeah, maybe I'll get to have some special goodies too. Yeah, this is an exciting time. Well, it didn't happen. Jesus was crucified. And they spent that very dark Friday night and Saturday and early Sunday morning until they discovered that he's back. Death could not hold Jesus. He's the real deal. And after his resurrection, they saw him, and he convinced them with many proofs that he was alive, and they they saw him eat, and they touched him, and they saw the scars in his hand, and they had watched the crucifixion, and now he's alive. Certainly, now he's going to restore the kingdom. And so they said to him, are we going to get our thrones now? (laughs) Is it today? And, and people, some commentaries sort of mock the disciples, the, these, these, the, the, the apostles, because they couldn't wait to get their thrones. You know, I don't mock them. I, I want to follow them. I want to wake up every day and say, is it today? Is it today you're going to return? As John said at the end of the book of Revelation, even so come, Lord. Jesus, fix this broken world. Reign over us as the prophets promised with justice and righteousness and peace. Restore it to what you created it to be before Adam and Eve messed it up. 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Say with the apostles, is it today? Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has, by his own authority, has set by his own authority. Very interesting word. God has not given you the authority to understand what only he knows. That's his power, his authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And these two words, uh, the, the first word, exousia, is, is authority. God, it's God has authority. He's not giving you his authority, but he is giving you his dunamis, his dynamite, his dynamo, his power, his energy. See, man can never do what only God can do. But God will not do what he's given humans to do. It's a team effort. And so God is the one driving the ship. God is the one with the authority. God is the one who decides the times and the epochs, the times and the seasons. But what he's given you is the capacity, the power to serve him. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, he had promised that back in the upper room and before he was crucified, he had talked about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here as he's after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit coming on you. And now when they ask, is the kingdom coming? He's saying, yeah, it's coming, but not in the way you think. It's being introduced, but it's not the full-blown kingdom. That will happen when Jesus returns. But now he's empowered you to build his kingdom, to live in his kingdom, to be the subjects of his kingdom, to obey him and to serve him under his authority as he directs, as he guides. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, this idea of being his witnesses, what does that mean? What is a a witness? Well, to understand better what Jesus was referring to, excuse me, let's go back to another moment. After Jesus' resurrection, when they were up in Galilee, go with me to, to Matthew chapter 28. And I, if you don't have your Bible with you or your little device thing or whatever you use, uh, 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 there's a pew Bible in front of you. This is such important stuff. This is life. This is meat and potatoes. This is everyday life for us. So he said, you will be my witnesses. Now, the word is be. He's not talking about what we're going to do. He's talking about what we are. This is wherever you show up. This is who you are. Now, he said, this is what I've told you what you're going to do. You will go and make disciples. This is verse, uh, 20, uh, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 16. The 11, this is after the resurrection. It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. 
So sometime after the resurrection, one of those meetings that he had, he said, you guys head on up to Galilee, I'll meet you up there. And John 21 tells us that beautiful story on the Sea of Galilee where the, the, some of them went fishing and they couldn't catch any fish and, and Jesus caught, had some fish and he's, after all, he's a professional fisherman. After fishing all night, they caught nothing and Jesus said, hey, how you doing? You caught anything? You can't ask a worse question to a fisherman who hasn't caught anything than have you caught anything. These are the pros. And I said, no, we don't have anything. Jesus said, come on, I got some right here. And so he fed them breakfast. He had that wonderful moment of restoring Peter. So, so that was one of the great events after the resurrection that happened in Galilee. But this is another event that happened in Galilee. Uh, he's, they went to the mountain in Galilee where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You say, how could they doubt? Well, can we get our heads around the incredible event? To watch someone be crucified and then to watch them eat a piece of fish and to touch flesh and bone, to see the scars and to hear him talk. They were still wrestling with that. That's 2,000 years later. And I've read this stuff how many times? And how many times have you read it? But do you ever doubt? You ever wonder if any of this is true? I used to tell my students, if you've never doubted, you're not thinking. This is amazing stuff. And some of them said, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, and there's that exousia again, that authority, all authority that the Father has has been given to me. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And the word nations is, you'll recognize this, it's ethne, ethnos. So he's not talking about geographical locations. He's not talking about the United States as a nation, as a hunk of geography. He's talking about the people. He's not talking about Canada as being north of the United States. He's talking about ethne, people, people groups, people groups. Whether it's Western culture or whether it's where my friends Leon and Lorraine Dillinger went to the bone-in-the-nose cannibal no clothes, edge of the world, people, ethne, sophisticated, educated, primitive. Somebody asked, his name isn't coming to me, a great man, <laughs> what he thought of Western culture. He said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> Ethne, people, poor people, rich people, educated, uneducated, Jews, Greeks, men, women, kids, ethne, all. 
nations. But what does this word make disciples? That's the imperative. All the others are participles. This is an imperative. The command is make disciples. Now, if we're going to be a witness of something, it has to be a witness of something we have witnessed. <laughs> Experienced. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've tasted it. We've touched it. I can testify to it. I can be a witness to it because I understand it. I've experienced it. And what Jesus said is you are to be a witness of the fact that you are a disciple. You can't make disciples if you're not a disciple. He said, I want to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In other words, bringing them into a personal relationship with me like you have come into a personal relationship with me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is the church's mission. Whatever else we do, we are to be being and making disciples. Some churches have rewritten it, go to all the world and have potluck suppers. There's nothing wrong with having potluck suppers. We're going to have a great lunch over here today. See, I'd be in trouble, wouldn't I, if I did? The church is not in trouble because so much of what they do do. The church is in trouble because so many churches do not obey this great commission. I'm reading a book right now titled The Great Omission, which is a rebuke on many churches that have forgotten why they exist. There's only one mission statement for any church, anywhere. Go and make disciples. Go and be disciples so you can make disciples. And this word disciple, mathetes, uh, Gerhard Kittel's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words. If you get sleepy, or if you get some night insomnia and you can't sleep, this is a great book <laughs> for you to keep by your bed. But there's some exciting stuff in there too. Some of it's a little heavy. But Kittel says, mathetes, the word disciple, that's the word, always implies the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the one described as disciple, and which in its particularity leaves no doubt as to who is being deployed, who is deploying the formative power. I screwed that up, let me read it again. And which in its particularity leaves no doubt as to who is deploying the formative power. To be a disciple is to, following Paul's teaching in Romans 8, to be being conformed to the image of Christ. He is deploying the formative power. 
And the word conformed is somorphos, morph, morphe, metamorphosis, a process of growth, a process of change, a process of development. A disciple is constantly being reshaped, rebuilt, remolded by none other than Jesus Christ himself through the power of his Holy Spirit in a human life. Disciple always implies the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the one described as a disciple. Paul prayed this to the Ephesians. For this reason, this is Ephesians chapter 3, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Here's what I pray. I pray out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ lives and abides in your inner being. That Christ may live in your and he used this word very particularly, in your hearts. We tell our kids, Jesus lives in your heart. And they go, what's that about? But the word heart means, it's like, and I've said this so many times, I can't say it enough. It's that place where the, the intellect, the emotion, and the will combine. See, Western thought says we've made of intellect, emotion, and will. Hebrew thought says, no, 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 it's all. It's all called the heart. Above all else, Proverbs says, Solomon warns us, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life, your values, your thoughts, your desires, your wishes, your fears, all that stuff. The heart is the wellspring of life. And Paul prayed that in your, the Holy Spirit would abide in your inner person so that Christ may live in your heart. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. And as that happens, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are becoming more like God's Son. And as those changes come, and as old habits and old attitudes and things fall away, and as new habits and new rich beauty comes into our life, we're excited, and it's not just go to church and ho-hum and hope you stay awake through the sermon. None of you do that. I mean, we're talking about other churches now. <laughs> but Christianity, my relationship, my personal relationship as a disciple, implying the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life, I'm so excited about that. I share it. People see it. People who used to know me now know me as a this different person. I'm more patient. I'm more tolerable. My language is cleaned up. I'm more loving. I'm more gentle. I'm more patient. I'm kinder. What's going on with you? Jesus is changing my life. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you will be my witness. You can't help it. Now, once you name the name Christian, you say, oh, I go to church, church, 
I am a Christian, you have become a witness. So there's a double-edged sword there when it said, Jesus said, now you, you, got, you will be my witness. That's inescapable. That's not the question, will I be God's witness or not? The only question is, will I be a good witness that brings glory to Christ and attracts other people to Christ, or will I be an embarrassment to Christ and his church? You will be my witness. But I want you to be a witness as a disciple. And I want you to be a witness who is so compelling, who is so attractive because of Christ's life in you, that others say, I want to be a disciple. Can I be baptized? Can I be a Christian? Can I join the club? Can I be part of the church of Jesus Christ? And can I learn how to be more like what I see in you? Could I be your disciple? No, you can't be my disciple. But I can help you be a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kittle goes on, the control of the of the disciples by the person to whom they have committed themselves extends in the New Testament to the inner life extends to the inner life. In the New Testament, we do not find any instance where mathetes is used without this implication of supremely personal union. The common non-New Testament use for purely formal dependence never occurs in the New Testament. And that's why Matthew recorded in chapter 10, Luke recorded in chapter 6. The student, the disciple, after she has fully been trained, will be like her master. <laughs> wow. So I look in the mirror and say, how like Jesus have you been today? Every night. And every morning, oh Lord, let me be like you today. The temptations that I face, the trials, the aggravations, all that stuff, the good stuff, the Bible passages that I read, the good literature that I read, the songs that I sing, the people that I engage. Lord, may it all be part of your plan to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. Let me be a disciple. Let me be a disciple. Let me be like Christ. Luke 14, Jesus said, unless you wreck, totally abandon every other thing in your life and put me first, you will not be able to be my disciple. I've talked about this last spring, this whole idea you cannot be my disciple. Jesus didn't say I'm kicking you out of the club. He said I'm inviting you into the club, but unless you are totally committed to me, you won't make it. Not because I'm kicking you out. You just won't be able to do it. 
If you love anybody or anything or even your own life more than you love me, you cannot be my disciple. That's the church's mission statement. Be a disciple so that you can make disciples. And a disciple is someone whose life is totally governed, empowered, enriched by none other than God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose names we have been baptized. The whole Godhead. I'm reading a book. It's called Enjoying God. My uh, son, Ryan, who's going to be here in a few weeks. Dear Ryan, he's a, he's a hoot. <laughs> Lovely guy. He's smarter than me, so I don't like him all the time. But anyway, this book called Enjoying God, Enjoying God by Tim Chester. I, I will, anybody wants this. But it just talks about the, the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how we should live in a wonderful, dynamic, operational relationship with our Father, with His Son, and with His Holy Spirit. And He has three chapters on each of those uh, persons of the Godhead. And, and, and reading it, you can see I'm kind of a ways through it. It's just, wow. You read it and you stop and he has these questions at the end and you say, Lord, I, I, get, I, I really didn't, I'm living on the edge, on the entry edge of what it means to be a Christian. I want to be a disciple. I want Jesus to be totally in control, in control of my whole life. I want this always implies the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the one described as Mathetes. Then, and only then, can I be what Jesus said in Acts 1. You will be my witness. In Jerusalem, which is your hometown, where you live. In Judea, Samaria, making an effort to get out. Samaria, even those people, the people you don't particularly want to get, and to the ends of the earth. Father, thank you for the wonderful invitation. The commandment, not an invitation. It's not the great suggestion, it's the great commandment, the great commission that we can actually have this kind of an intimate relationship with you where you are changing our life. And because our life is being changed, we are witnesses. We give testimony. Like in a court, people see us, people hear us. And it gives witness to the power of Christ to transform a life so that it is continually becoming more like our Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for that privilege.